Well, good morning. Welcome to 2023. Hallelujah. Another year. Last year, I didn't find last year was that terrible. But for many people, it was an awful year. But we're believing for more. Amen. More of God. I, I actually believe that every year from now until the return of Jesus Christ is a better year. It may not be experientially better because, you know, we might be going through the furnace of trial where God is trying to decrease us in order to increase Christ. But it still means an augmentation of the presence of God, of the glory of God in the earth. Can you say amen? So, Father, we say in Jesus' name, we enter this year. 2023 with expectation and with hope that says, Lord, you have appointed for more in this hour. And so, Lord, we enter and we praise and we worship today, expecting more of your presence, more of your glory. And we say, Lord, less of me and more of you. Let's worship him. Now, you might be wondering, what is it we are stepping into? On this, on this level of the earth, there are so many things that seemed unresolved. You go into an election season and people are vying, voting for and contending for a certain personality to, to get the, the top spot, to be voted into power. And everybody's trying to curry favor with that candidate that they believe possibly could win. But at the end of the day, there's only one winner in an election. And I want to say that at the end of the age, there's only one king. There's only one who will be left standing at the end of the age. And when that becomes evident to all, we'll realize the futility of everybody's opinion. We'll realize the futility of all those moments when we succumb to the, the angst of people not liking us. Once we realize that there always has and only been one king, one Lord of all, one ruler over the universe, you start to realize, when that day comes, we're going to stand before him and we're going to realize we had access to the one true authority our whole days, all of our life. But instead, we appealed to the authority of a financial system. We appealed to the authority of a political system. We appealed to the authority of a social hierarchy. God is saying, you have the power to pull the relevance, the relevance of my kingdom into your world right now. Because I am that I am right now. Not just in eternity. That's what it means to say your kingdom come. We step in. We step into the realm of your authority. We step into the realm of your glory. We step into the realm of your presence. So Father, we pray today, God, that our hearts would turn more and more toward you. That without reservation, <laughs> without reservation, Father, our hearts will turn. Yes, Lord. Can you say amen? amen. Hallelujah. Well, we have a lot more to say about these things. But what's happening when we repent? Do you know what repentance means? It's, it means turning. Yeah. And the reality of all of our lives is that our confidence needs to turn more and more. And the reality of this journey is you realize along the way that you can say, Oh, Lord, I have all confidence in you. And yet you hedge your bets. You do it in a thousand different ways. 
because our hearts are so divided and we don't even know we do it. But what God is doing is pulling in all the strings, all the cords of our heart to turn them in one direction. This is what it means to draw near to God. And he says, listen, and when you draw near to me, when you give me all of your heart, I will draw near to you. And this is the journey that we're on. So, Father, we say thank you, God, that we are your workmanship, created in you for good works, and that, Lord, you are transforming us into the full, unadulterated image of your Son. And we say, Lord, let it be more and more and more in this year, 2023, in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. All right. So what's God saying for 2023? Now, some of you probably are avid followers of social media. Maybe you've been looking all over the place seeing Okay, what can I expect this year? What are the prophets saying? What are the, what's the church saying? What are the correct, accurate, prophetic words of what I can expect this year? <laughs> I want to say more. More than last year. More hope. More authority. There's always more available to us. God is trying to transform us and he's looking for candidates that he can transform at a quicker pace than others. Now, I, I, I put out an article the other day called Hope Rising or Hope Arising. And in there I talked about one of God's core objectives. And you know what God's core objective is? Do you know what God's after more than anything? You. That's right. You, 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 you. We are the objects of all of God's workmanship. Everything that God is doing is summed up in bringing his new creations into full maturity. Ah, I, I, I feel this prophetic revelation in the room. Thank you, Lord. Father, make it clear to us what it is you are, tur- you are turning us into. I, uh, as we were worshiping, I was seeing all these pictures scattered across the scripture about the sons of God. And I remember years ago, we had this prophet in Dallas, Texas. His name was Chuck Flynn. And he used to talk about, in these, he used to talk in this cryptic way about the revelation of what God was after. And he says, the revelation of Jesus, which is really the revelation of the sons of God. He's the firstborn of many. Say many. Firstborn of many. And what that means is God has always intended that it's not just Jesus coming, but Jesus comes to facilitate the production, the release, the maturity of many exactly like him. Many. And so there is this, uh, there's this reality that's scattered through scripture. And Chuck Flynn would say, and I love the way he'd say this. And he, he was a big guy. He's like 350 pounds. And he's kind of pear-shaped, bald. Had a deep, deep, deep southern Texas voice, accent. And he would say, the revelation of Jesus is like taking a stone and skipping it across the lake and all the places that it touched down. You know, that picture, he said, the scripture is like that. The revelation of Jesus is scattered. It's sprinkled throughout throughout the, the passages of the Bible. And so you see... Even though the personality of Jesus is restricted, in essence, to the New Testament, the revelation of what he came to do is scattered from old to new. And we see moments of unusual authority on mankind. This is is the thing that the enemy wars against the most. He doesn't want you to realize what your real potential is. 
He doesn't want you to believe that you can break out of the containment that he's presently built around your life right now. He doesn't want you to hope that you can have more than the frustrations that have thus far held you in place. But here's what's happening in 2023. A people are starting to believe. A people are starting to rise up and and. The light is beginning to shine, and we're beginning to think that, you know what, I think I can be free from this fear. I think I can be free from this torment. I think I can be free from this sin. I think I can be free from this addiction. I think I can be free from this brokenness in my life that makes me a continual victim of the powers of darkness. This is what, this is the good news. This is the good news. Goodwill to men, heaven says. And so you have this picture of authority down through scripture. And I think of the time that Jonathan, it just dawned on Jonathan one day. I mean, they're coming out of an era where Israel doesn't even have any weapons. They got pitchforks and and they can't even sharpen their farm implements. They have to go up to the Philistines because they're they're so enslaved, they, they don't even have sharpening tools. They've been stripped of all those things, lest they rise up, lest they realize that they could throw off the shackles of tyranny. This is what that spirit of slavery always does. I want to remove from you the very elements that you need to exercise the freedom that you are given by God. That same spirit is still doing it today. And so in this era, they're coming there, and only two of them have a sword. Jonathan has a sword, and and his father Saul has a sword. But Jonathan gets this great idea one day. There's a Philistine outpost not far from them, and he says to his armor bearer, let's go up and challenge them. Now, I don't know how many are in one of these Philistine outposts. Uh, I, I think maybe somebody said 30 to 50 soldiers. You know, not a, it's not a massive army, but he's, there are two of them, and only one of them's got a sword. But they go into battle, and the most significant thing happens. Suddenly they hear in the camp of Israel this sound of a tumult, sound of a roar, and, and, and they do a count to see, that's what they do. Let's, let's take attendance. <laughs> yeah, we should start taking attendance on Sundays. <laughs> let's take attendance to see who's not here. And, uh, and what happens, though, and this is the powerful thing, is that it says... That when Jonathan took his place and he stood in that that field and he challenged them, it says there was an earthquake. The earth shook. The earth shook. Let me tell you, the sign of the earth shaking is the sign of suns arising in the earth. That the the intention of God is that mighty ones, glorious ones, made in the image of Christ, would rise up. People like you and I, normal people, regular people, failed, weak, deficient people would come into something that the earth would begin to see. There is a resemblance there of something that we're waiting for. And that's what happened when Jonathan rolls up in that kind of boldness, that kind of presumptuous authority. The earth began to quake because the earth is waiting for the generation of the sons of God. The earth is looking down through the years. The earth doesn't know when it's going to happen. So the earth is looking. Looking and waiting. And when it saw the boldness, the authority, the audacity of Jonathan, it began to quake out of promise. The promise of God that was put in creation suddenly began to stir. Creation began to hope. It began to ask itself the question Is this the moment? Hallelujah. I love that. Ah, so you have moments like this scattered all through the scripture. Another one is Joshua. Joshua's out there, of course. He's the servant of Moses. He, he's followed Moses. Moses is the boss. And then they cross over into the land. But as they're going, and I think it's the, the Amalekites that they're fighting, and they're winning this crucial battle. 
this critical battle. They're right in the middle of it, and all of a sudden, Joshua realizes, man, we need more daylight, because if we don't have enough daylight, we're going to lose the fullness of this victory. So, on a whim, (laughs) he turns to the sun and commands the sun to stand still. Who told you you could do that? Right? I mean, uh, you know, maybe you've done some things and nothing happened. I want to say don't give up. Don't give up. Because you may not be there yet, but don't give up the dream. Don't give up the hope. Don't give up the potential, the possibility that the authority to say, son, stand still, might one day be in your hand. But he... I I think it's so crazy that he, it entered into his heart. Where do you get that kind of audacity? Everybody said, that's a little presumptuous. I wonder if people stood around and said, Joshua, like, who made you God? But this is the nature of that that kingdom assurance. You see, when, when God caused you to be born again, he put a seed of something inside of you. You know what that seed is? It's the seed of the word of God. Who's the word of God? Who is the word of God? Jesus. All things are created by the word. And without the word was nothing created that was made. And so the word of God created everything. And so God, when you became born again, your fallen state, your weakness, everything that you were in sin and destruction, all those things, he said, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, I, I, what can you do with this kind of dirt that's in my life? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll plant a seed in that dirt. You don't have to be anything special. All you have to be is dirt to receive a seed. And that's what God did. He put a seed. And what is the seed? What's in the DNA of that seed? Well, you just wait. This is what God is saying to creation. You just wait. This is the mystery of godliness coming to destroy the mystery of iniquity. Say, listen, the people that are caught up in darkness, the people over whom the shadow of darkness has fallen, who are stuck in iniquity and sin, doesn't matter because I'm coming with a light. I'm going to shine a light on you, and that light is not just any light. It is a supernatural light that is pushing into you the DNA of the Son of God. I love that picture. Then you have this other guy named Jehu. And I love the part what Jehu does because Jehu represents an implicit authority that comes with being sent by God. When Jehu is driving with his, of course they say, oh, it looks like Jehu. You know, he drives a certain way. Is that you? Are you the one that drives it? You know, it might be so-and-so. They don't stop at stop signs. Could be. The driving is the driving of Mark, my wife might say. (laughs) But he is driving his horses, and Jezebel and Ahab are safe in their castle, and and they send out messengers to see, is is it dangerous? Like, who are these messengers? Who's coming? What do they have? And so they come out, and as they come out, they ask the question, you know, is it for peace or something like that? And Jehu, he doesn't answer your question. Well, don't you know, I'm, I'm sent by the queen. I'm sent by the king. You have to answer. But here, here's what, Jehu is caught up in an unhuman, uh, an unnatural, an unearthly authority. And he says to them, what is that to you? Get behind me. And you know what the messengers do? They get behind. They fall right into line. What is that? That is a picture of kingdom authority. That is a picture of something that cannot be moved by earthly means. You see, this is what you were born into. This is what you are called to. You are called to operate in the authority of the sons of God. Can you say amen? Father, in Jesus' name, we say, let revelation break through. Let revelation break through today on us here in this room. Anybody who's watching. Now, wow. 
You see, when, when we were worshiping earlier, uh, I always go back to the same things. I begin to see the construct of the kingdom of heaven. There is an immovable force that's establishing itself at the core of the universe, and it begins with God. It is the revelation of God. And, and what God is doing is, is he's put attributes, aspects, DNA, lines of, of code inside of your being that are meant to bring forth the authority of the kingdom. But here's, we're in a place where we're, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? So we, we're trying out this, our authority, and we're trying out to see if it works. What I love about this is it shows us the mature reality, the fullness of what it's going to be at the end when it's done. Now, another scripture. Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give to you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That promise was given to the disciples. That promise was given to the 12 that Jesus sent out. When he sent out those 12, he sent them out with this authority. And when they went out, suddenly they realized that demons were subject to them, that they could heal the sick, that they were, they were immune to the powers of the enemy. And now they came back very excited about that. They came back a little, a little elevated about their newfound authority. So Jesus, he says this to them. He says, listen, yeah, I, I am giving you authority. Authority. Father, in Jesus' name, right now, come on. Authority. Even as I'm sharing this, we're warring against the spirit. We're warring against the sound. We're warring against this atmosphere of complacency that's trying to drift in over this room to keep you from grabbing the promise that's yours. Jesus, ruler of all, king of kings, lord of lords, name above every name, every name that is named. Now, I'm just giving you those little, some of those little touchdown points that Chuck Flynn was talking about. These are the examples. These are the illustrations. These are part of the promises that have been given to you as a son of God. And you may be thinking, yeah, well, I, I'm not anybody. I'm just a housewife. I just, I just you know, pray for... I, I just pray for my neighbor. I just, I, I work at a construction job. I'm nobody special. I'm not influential. But everything necessary from life and godliness is already inside of you. Already inside of you. Already inside of you. Already inside of you. Now, I'm going to turn, go to Romans 8 here, because to me, Romans 8 is one of the few passages in the scripture that isolate the final expression. When, when we think, when I think about what is it that God is doing with not only me, but you, every single one of us, I go to Romans 8, because this is what God is doing. Romans 8 verse 19 says this, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, let's pause there for a second. You remember I said earlier about the earthquake. Well, there's another passage that in Revelations talks about the dragon and how the dragon was pursuing the woman and the child. But it says, Then the earth helped the woman. And opened up, her, opened up its mouth and uh, consumed the flood that was being released from the dragon. This is another picture of just a part of the provision that God has made for us as sons of God. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, well, I have no power at all. I'm afraid. I, I, I don't even like to leave my home. I can't hold down a job. I have addiction problems. I have, I have lust issues. I have sin issues. Well, listen, you beating yourself up about it is not going to fix that issue. You know what's going to fix that issue? Is realizing that there's something else inside of you besides the addictions. 
And Paul wasn't sheepish about what was inside him. He said, listen, there's something inside of me that's hostile to God. There's something inside of me that wants the very polar opposite of what I want. But it doesn't keep me from the promise. And so as he's realizing these two extremes of these two forces, not out there, but in here, he says, who will deliver me? And this is the revelation he has. I thank God through Jesus Christ uh, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from the destiny. Yes, I have all these issues, but you know what's greater? You know what's greater? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me. Christ in me. And what the enemy is trying to get you to do is to believe that the snares of sin are greater than the power of godliness. But God is trying to say, and the Holy Spirit is witnessing, no, there is authority inside of you. So the whole creation is waiting because it knows unreservedly that there is a day coming when a people will appear on the earth who have the image of Christ so fully represented in them that everything that Jesus was and is and did is in their grasp. Come on. We're not waiting for heaven to finally be like Jesus. We're becoming like Jesus now here in this world. That's why the apostle John wrote, as he is now, so are we in this world. Well, how is he right now? This is the promise. How is he right now? He is seated in heavenly places. God, breakthrough, 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 breakthrough. I Break the power of that demonic, demoralizing, condescending, belittling spirit that tries to hover over your life. And every time you stumble, every time you manifest any kind of weakness, that thing hovers over you like, a, like the voice of an angry woman. Like the voice of an accusing friend who is not a friend at all. In Jesus' name. This is the year you break past. This is the year that you realize that everybody that you've ever seen in Scripture, whether it was Moses or Elijah or Jehu or Jesus or the the apostles, everybody you've ever seen down through church history, William Booth, Charles Finney, William uh, Smith Wigglesworth, Everything that they had was this. They realized that there was something inside of them. That's what they realized. They realized they had been given something. That's all they got. They realized, I have been given something. And you know what they had to face? Well, who do you think you are? I know who you are. I know the thoughts you think. I know your weakness. But they say, it doesn't matter. Yes, I'm dirt. But the seed, the seed, the seed, the seed is growing up. I'm just protecting the seed. I'm not justifying the dirt. See, when you really actually start to believe that, everything begins to change. That's why it's so hard for people to see anointed men who are imperfect. That's why people stumble when they get to know me. The more you get to know me, the more you realize I'm just like you. And then you think, well, why am I following him? (laughs) Not because I don't have dirt, but because the seed has been allowed to break out of its husk and begin to produce fruit. But there's this mindset of idolatry in the church that we're looking for heroes. We're looking for perfection. We're looking for people who, who have nothing wrong with them. That's why when you come to church, and, oh, this is a great church, the anointing, the presence, the worship, then you realize there's people there. <laughs> and they're just the same as the other people. 
So disappointing. I thought this was going to be a glorious house. It is a glorious house. But what you got to get past is the cynicism of realizing that you had idolatry in your heart. You were looking for some kind of weird perfection that would come from you. And because you didn't think you had it, you thought maybe somebody else had it. But nobody's got that kind of perfection. Running out of air there. Nobody's got that kind of perfection. Ah, what we have is a promise. What we have is a God in heaven who's made provision for what's wrong with us. That's what we have. Woo! Hallelujah! Now, God is raising up men and women who believe, who believe that the grace of God is enough. That the grace of God, that the the love of God is all that it's needed to justify us. uh, Don't you think that's the weirdest thing? We are justified by faith? Really? Because I'd rather you be justified by perfection. (laughs) Right? How many of you, come on, tell me the truth. How many of you got friends or spouses? You think, well, this person has disappointed me because they think they're justified. Yet I know what's wrong with them. (laughs) And God says they are justified by faith. And the transformation, see, they're justified right now, but the transformation is ongoing. And you want to wait till you're perfect before you feel justified. You're never going to get there. In fact, the more you think that you're, the more you are intent on waiting for perfection to break forth from you, the, le- the further you get from it. Because God resists the proud. No, you have to enter this by faith. You have to believe in my justifying power, not your moral uprightness and deservedness. And if you think if you think you're going to get morally deserving of my grace, that's the kind of pride that I resist. I hate that kind of pride. That's why if you've come from sin, if you've come from brokenness, if you've come from addiction, if you've come from weakness of any kind, you are postured more than the perfect to to step into the image of God. You know, those, those people that have been raised and they're emotionally healthy and they're able to restrain what they really think? They're able, they're able to hold back the emotions of what they really feel and say the right thing in every occasion? Those are the people you want to get your distance from. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Listen, we are the assembly of the broken. The congregation of the weak. Right? The fellowship of the fallen. Yeah, never mind the ring. Fellowship of the fallen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Now, there's, I'm on my way towards something. I'm just not even sure I can get there. But this is the promise that we have. That God says, from the time I initiated this program until the end, There is absolute acceleration. There has never been a moment of deceleration or diminishment of the promise, of the reality of the promise all through church history. Every time that you saw what seemed to be uh, deficiencies or step backwards, well, you know, the church used to be stronger. No, the church used to appear stronger. You know, back in the era, I want to go back to the 50s when when America was wholesome. America was not more wholesome in the 50s than it is now. It just had a form of godliness that was more appealing to humanity. That's all it was. There was just so much fear and condemnation. Nobody was allowed to be who they really were. And and so, so we were coerced. By, by the strength of condemnation and fear of man 
to, to hold back the reins of what we really wanted to say and really wanted to do. That's not righteousness. That's a form of godliness that's actually concealing reality. And so everything that we have now, there has never been a brighter day. There has never been a fuller faith. There has never been sons of God more completely formed than there is right now. Right now, right now, true authority in the sons of God has never been fuller. Somebody says, well, yeah, but what about Charles Finney? Yeah, that's one guy in a generation of losers. And I say that very generously because that's what God does in every generation. He said, when I saw there was no one, I went and did it myself. And how did I do it? Oh, I just picked a random guy in the midst of tens of thousands and gave him a taste of something he could not shake. And I changed him so that he would be a beacon of light. Not because he was so great, but because I'm great. And he stood head and shoulders above everybody else in his generation. And we look back at his life as an anomaly. We think, oh, I wish I was like him. But what he was was an example of what you could be. But I made him as a foretaste to that generation so they wouldn't lose hope. He was not an example of that generation. Far be it. He was the anomaly. Today, in this room, there is more faith in this room than there ever was in all of Canada in those days. That's the reality. Come on. Shake off that delusional, depressing, confining thinking that accuses you and hovers over you to try to keep you from believing. But it's, again, it's not because you're so morally upright. It's because the revelation of God. The revelation of God. I'm standing here today not because I have some moral authority to say what I'm saying, but because I know in whom I have believed. I know what I would have made of myself. I know what I did make of myself. But everything that's good in me comes from him, and I absolutely know it. Woo! Are you guys still with me? Uh, Lord Jesus. Now... Trying to get to my message. <laughs> trying to get to my message. And let me let me try to, to do this. There is I believe we're on the cusp of something. And I'm gonna read a scripture from from Malachi here. And it's Malachi four verse five and six. And it represents something that we talked about in Canada. You know, with the journey we've been on for some years. But this is what it says. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So this is a really interesting passage of Scripture. It may not have much relevance to you right now, but it has significant relevance to the whole trajectory of what God was doing because one of the greatest challenges down through history as one generation gives life to another generation, as generations follow one another and the baton of faith is passed from one to another, The greatest barrier has been in this bizarre kind of tension and hostility. And uh, there's another word, uh, uh, but this this unwillingness for the one generation to honor and bless the other and for the next generation to bless those from before. We've talked about this in the past. Some of you are students of revival. One of the things you've heard said is that the the leaders of the 
past revelation, the past revival, the past wave of the Spirit of God always persecute the next. And I'm not going to say that because I don't want to believe it to be true because I believe what we're coming into is a different day. Now, it has been true on many, many levels. But what this passage tells me here, that is that there's coming a generation where the hearts of one generation are completely aligned with the hearts of the next generation. That's what's coming. And what it's going to do is it's going to avert a curse on that generation. And the curse always amounts to this. God resists the proud. God resists instead of pouring out grace. So there's coming a time through the spirit of Elijah where God is going to cause one generation to fully embrace another generation. But here's what's required. Fathers, spiritual fathers, real spiritual fathers are required. And there's so much we can say about this, and I'm not going to cover the theme of fathers exhaustively. I'm not going to give you a a model for how to be the best dad because we're not even talking about being the best dad in human terms. When they talk about Elijah, they're not talking about a figure who was the best dad. A, he didn't even have kids. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He didn't have kids. And then when he had the chance to have one, he's trying to get rid of them the whole time. (laughs) How's that for a father? (laughs) Right? Elijah is going along and Elijah's trying to follow him. Yeah, I want some of your anointing. Yeah, you wish. (laughs) And it's like, shoe fly. He said, why don't you go over there? I'm going to go here. Because he's been given this promise. Well, okay. You know, I, I don't think Elijah was disposed to do anything for him. Again, we're not talking about fathers in the classic sense. Well, you know, sat down, he read stories at bedtime. He tucked me in every night. He was always there for me. He was never missing. He always said and did the right things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who championed the promise of the kingdom of God for a nation and took the burden on them to see corporate breakthrough for a country, for a nationality, for a generation of people into terms of the lineage of heaven's uh, heaven's posterity he took a place in in the affairs of the kingdom of God on earth and stood his ground and was not shaken that's what God defines as a spiritual father he was a father for the nation he contended for the blessing and the destiny of that nation so we're not talking about perfect dads here Otherwise, most of you would be disqualified. And all of you that think you did it right, even more so. (laughs) No, Elijah was not a cuddly bear. He was not a warm, sit-by-the-fire, sit-on-my-knee kind of dad. And yet, he is the emblem of, He is raised up as the epitome of a spiritual father. So anyway, Elisha is told, if you see me when I go, then you're going to get the the promise. And, And we know that. But here's the question. If God is raising up fathers in the land today, how do we get there? How do you, how do I become a spiritual father? How do I become one of this character, of this quality, of this ability in my generation? How do I participate in this? How do I take on the attributes? Okay, I don't have to be something I'm not. That's great. Good start. I don't have to be perfect. That's great. Good start. But what is it, what is it I need to do? Well, recently it came to light to me that what God is trying to, to raise up is a generation of fathers who are distinguished from siblings. When I think of fathers, I think of somebody who's not a sibling. 
And so when I'm starting to wonder about what kind of attributes are in a father that make somebody a spiritual father, it's counter to those things that are in siblings. And let me just quickly say the first thing that siblings have. Do you know what they have? It's a thing called sibling rivalry. Siblings are distinguished from fathers and that siblings compete with you and will take away your destiny, whereas fathers don't compete with you and are hoping and believing for you to enter into your destiny. And one of the key differences, and you see this all the way down with everybody who tried to do something for God, that voice of siblings always rises up in the same thing. Who do you think you are? That's the voice of the sibling. Who do you think you are? I know you, I, we played pajamas, we slept in the same bed in our pajamas. I remember you used to get so mad just because my pajamas were rubbing up against your pajamas. And now you think you're what? Sibling rivalry is one of the things that keep us from stepping up. So we have these moments then, and I want to look at one. You got, you've got Joseph, right? Remember Joseph? He wasn't struck by any sibling rivalry, was he? What about Abel? Yeah, okay, he was killed by his brother as well. Let me see, Joseph, well, he wasn't killed by his brother. He was just imprisoned, pretended to be uh, lost, sold into slavery. And before that, he suffered horrific abuse from the loathing of his siblings who were jealous about his potential destiny. Potential destiny will always raise the worst out of siblings and the best out of fathers. So anyway, David's another one of these guys. He's a person of promise. How did it go for David? Well, let's start. When the prophet came to town, his dad didn't even consider him a candidate. Didn't even call him in from the fields having this feast and this anointed time and the rest of that. And so it's like he's looking, Samuel the prophet's like, oh, this must be him. No, that's not him. This must be him. Do you have any more? Well, none we, can, none we think are suitable candidates. But there is a young one out in the field with a sheep. Well, get him. Get that guy. See, even his dad didn't think he was a suitable candidate. And then when he came And Samuel saw him. Samuel didn't think he was a suitable candidate. And the Lord said, don't look at his outer appearance. I don't know what was wrong with him. Seems perfect to me. He was probably a little short, I think. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) So he gets... He gets anointed, he gets called, and he has this amazing destiny ahead of him. But it's not immediately realized. He doesn't become king that day. He just gets this flask of oil, it just gets dirty, greasy. Gotta go bathe. Where's the cow gone? But then later on, he's sent up to the front, and he goes up there. And I'm, I mean, there's a lot more details of David's life, but here's a significant moment. So in 1 Samuel 17 verse 26 it says then David spoke to the men because he sent up to the front where the wars this is right before the Goliath battle he sent up there and David spoke to the men who stood by him saying what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God and the people answered him in this manner saying so shall it be for the man who kills him. This is the key verse here. Listen to this. Now, Eliab, I don't know if that's how you say it. He's the oldest brother. Heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was, was aroused against David. And he said to him, why did you come here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That's a little belittling, belittling eh? You don't even belong here. You're not even old enough to be here. You're supposed to be taking care of the animals. But listen to this. I know your pride and your insolence, the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? That voice always says, I, who do you think you are? You, you, you failed in this many ways. I have a list of all the different ways, all of the different disqualifying issues over your life. I can tell you a thousand reasons why God will never use you. That's what that voice says. You're too old. You're too young. You're too tall. You're too short. Your hair is not, it's not curly enough. That sinister spirit that accuses and disqualifies comes to say, who do you, don't you dare believe. Don't you dare think past your pay grade. Now what's interesting here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but Eliab's accusation, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. Let me quickly say this. Boys are dreamers. Little boys especially. I mean, little girls are dreamers too. But I I was only a boy. (laughs) So I'm going to talk from the context of being a little boy. And little boys, I would lose myself in a moment of playing war. Having swords. I mean, I... Uh, my son Jaden was the same way. We got him this little, you know, David and Goliath costume, and we'd play the song, and he would stand there and dum dum. What was the name of that guy who sang that? I can't remember. I didn't hear you either. What? Oh, the Donut Man. Yeah, that's it. That's a different generation. The Donut Man. But but in that moment, like. He was David. He was David. And we have an ability to dream and believe ourselves to be something we might not be in the moment. And when our siblings look at us who are just a little bit older, they get that caustic cynicism about you're not going to amount to anything because I remember thinking like you. I remember dreaming I remember hoping, but this is the reality of my life. And I've become disillusioned in my dreams. And I've, I've decided not to dream anymore, but to become more realistic about what's attainable to me. And the reason why Eliab was accusing David is because there's no way that you're better than me. I, I got to where I am and, and I'm the oldest, and I barely got here, and I'm taller, I'm stronger, I'm wiser, I'm better than you. There's no chance. This is a delusional dream that you have. And you know what? In some cases, it might be. But I prefer a delusional dream to disillusionment and cynicism. Now, let me cut to the quick. The journey from being a sibling to being a father means getting rid of that cynicism. The difference between fathers and brothers is that brothers don't want to believe in your capacity to exceed them. Older brothers loathe the idea of younger brothers doing things older brothers could never do. And when you have a younger brother who's this snot-nosed, puny, not even into puberty yet, and, and imagine that he's going to be better. Not, not a chance he's not going to be better than me. But in the kingdom of God, the potential of every living being on the face of the earth, every person, every man, woman, and child is through the roof. And it's not based on genetics. It's not based on history. It's not based on flawlessness. It's based on can you believe the promise of God? Or are you going to be anchored by the circumstances that surround you right now that tell you continuously who you are and who you're not. Now here's, here's the problem and this is the reason a generation becomes cynical. I remember when I was a young Christian it seemed everybody I met who had gray hair was cynical. Caustic bitterness and, and it's like it was like their job to keep you from believing that you can be something. Do you know where that comes from? 
my own disillusionment. I once had dreams, and the disappointment of not realizing those dreams almost killed me, so I want to save you from that pain. That's what cynicism, that's the wisdom behind cynicism. I'm going to help you be realistic. The problem with, you know, and your track record is probably going to be pretty good. Of the thousand people that you said you're not going anywhere, most of them won't. And if you're tracking your statistics, you're going to be going to be right more often than you're wrong. But what if instead your cynicism is actually adding to the weight of disillusionment than making breakthrough not even possible? What if you're not saving them from disappointment that was so hard on you, but you're actually keeping them from even the hope of going anywhere? See, that's what elder brothers do because they have a vested interest. They don't want to be shown up. They don't want to be seen to be less than the youngest child of the family. But here's what happens is as you move along, you start to realize, you start to become cynical because of the bodies that litter the landscape of the church. You start coming along, you realize that, yeah, if it looks too good to be true, it is. Oh, that church, there's just, you know, it looks great, but I'm sure if I go around there and snoop around, I'm going to find a few evil people. You know what? You're right. You will find that. I sat with a man a few years ago. I didn't realize he was a well-known leader in the body of Christ. And I was going to invite him here. And we had lunch together. And when we had lunch together, I was, it was not only flat, it was the worst lunch I've ever had with a leader ever in my whole life. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. But I, this guy had absolutely no time for me. And I'm wondering, well, why are you even here? Clearly, you, you have already dismissed me. And as I, I, was, I was trying, I was thinking, okay, what can I do to get him not to dismiss me or our church or, you know, Canada? And, uh, and the harder I tried, the, theme, the more alienated he became because he was in the valley of cynicism. He had been a leader in the body of Christ and he had gone into green rooms and he'd spoken at conferences and he'd met young up and coming leaders in the body of Christ. And you know what he ran into? Imperfection. You know what he ran into? Ambition. You know what he ran into? Pride. Insolence pretentiousness. He ran into all of these things and it steadily downgraded his ability to believe that anybody could be more than he was right now in this moment. And so his heart was not just retreating from me. His heart was retreating from everyone because it just that though people are filled with selfish ambition and that's all you're going to get at the end of the day. When you ring any believer out, they're going to drip with with an agenda. Now, at the moment, I, I couldn't figure out how to, how to navigate that disillusionment. I didn't even know it was disillusionment, but I just kind of went away with it, like, I'm not inviting him. But what I didn't realize is that he was in the middle of a test. He was on his way to becoming a father But in the moment, he was breaking out of the cynicism of being a a sibling. You see, the difference between siblings and fathers is hope. Hope enables you to believe that those who are coming after you will break through where you didn't break through who will rise above, who will transcend the challenges that you were unable to, ch- to transcend. And I believe that we are on the cusp of a whole generation of leaders breaking through. I want to read something I wrote. Caustic cynicism is destructive and an isolating force which will deter us from our destiny. At the core of cynicism is hopelessness. Hopelessness becomes directed towards others, suspecting that all are motivated by nothing more than self-interest. It cannot 
but spawn divisiveness as it gives life to a wave of mistrusting tribalism. Paralyzing and pessimi- paralyzing pessimism paints wide swaths of the church as unwilling to change and incorrigibly corrupt. But I want to say this, that the father that we are meant to become is like God. He is filled with hope. He is filled with vision and promise. And furthermore, he has seen the end from the beginning. He has seen a generation of sons. A generation of sons. You see, many of us have a history. We've been in a church. We were disappointed by a fellow believer. Our, our former Sunday school is not even teacher, is not even serving the Lord anymore. He fell into sin. He got a divorce. He's in adultery. And each one of these moments downgrades. Your, see, I looked at a man and I thought, I was inspired by this person. Then I found out he was just like everybody else. I'm not going to make that mistake again. See, that's disillusionment. Oh, you think your church is so good? We'll just wait. We'll see. Because I've been a part of a lot of churches and division and brokenness and broken covenants and splits are the norm. And what happens is cynicism starts expecting that. And it's an inverted kind of hope. Listen. See, while detachment and withdrawal follow disillusionment, God is not that way. He's not detached from you. And this is what I want to read. Our Father is defined by vision and hope. He not only cheers us as we move forward, He actively actively celebrates our victories, even though they may be as yet unseen. Assuredly expecting we will transcend every obstacle is His natural bent. He is gloriously, painfully optimistic, unwilling to add a weight of unbelief to our shoulders, but is instead a continuous wind at our backs. He is the love that believes all things. This is what I want to conclude with today. There is a love that makes you optimistic. Love. Love makes you optimistic. Everything contrary to that love is centered in idolatry. Idolatry is, I'm the only person that matters. Both my failures and my victories determine what's possible. It's part of what idolatry does. But love believes all things. Love hopes It doesn't harness the children and the next generation. Well, I dreamed once and got disappointed. Let me save you from that disappointment. Don't try to save me from your disappointment. Be a father and a mother. Father, I pray today that out of this house will come mothers and fathers who don't expect business failure in our children who don't expect divorce who don't watch our kids get married and believe before they're even past the first kiss that they will become just as disillusioned just as heartless just as hard-hearted as we did because there's we believe there's no way to transcend the disappointments of life father break the curse of negative false, hopeless expectation off of a generation. Father, may the next generation rise up with hope in Jesus' name. Now let me say one last thing for your young person in this room. And uh, and you want to be that candidate. There's going to be people around you that celebrate you. There's going to be people that believe in you. There's going to be people that push you on, say, venture. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. But then there's others who who are there who are stagnated in pessimism, and they can't do that. But let me say this. They are also useful. Because they, they have to be there to test the quality of your conviction. 
If the quality of your conviction is only dreams, empty dreams, you will be easily unfurled by their pessimism. And so they are a test for you. Their disappointments, their failures, their reluctance to believe is something you must transcend. So don't get mad at them and don't say you shouldn't be in the church. You go to old people church. <laughs> because this is, this is what God, the test for us as we rise up into destiny is God will say to you what he always would say to me when I, when I encountered people and situations and churches that were imperfect. He said, Mark, then you be it. Then you be the one that transcends. You be, if they were disillusioned, then you come up over top of that disillusion. Now you be the one that never gives up. You be the one that always hopes. You be the one that never stops dreaming. You're the one that fall, be the one that falls down and gets up again. You be the one that forgives. You be the one that walks with a clean heart. It, but you have to believe that it can be done. You have to believe that it can be done. Are you that person? This is what the Lord is asking. Are you that person today that says, I believe it can be done? I believe a generation of fathers and mothers can rise up who will transcend disappointment and disillusion. I believe. Let's stand up together. Father, as we enter into 2023, we pray that this should be an, un, uh, an unadulterated year, a year free from the skepticism, pessimism, and cynicism of hopelessness. Father, I pray, Lord, God, in Jesus' name, that we'll stop believing that this is the end of Canada, but we'll begin to believe that Canada has never seen a better day. That even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of testing, even in the midst of impossible circumstances, you make a way where there is no way. That's what hope says. Now, as we close today, I want our ministry team people to come forward quickly. We might have touched some chords today. We might have touched some triggers. Maybe you, you realize there's moments when you are undone by hopelessness. Maybe there's moments where the fear of man paralyzes your ability to venture forward. Maybe shame, maybe shame binds you from dreaming today and keeps you from believing that you can have a normal or better life, that you can exceed the righteousness of the past generation. I want to say, come up, confess it, and pray and be healed today. I want to say, if you have chronic pain in your body today, I want you to come forward and ask for prayer and believe that the laying on, laying on of hands will heal the sick. So, Father, we say in Jesus' name, let your kingdom come today. And everybody said?